Paul writes that at the beginning of the book of Romans, chapter 1, and it brings up an interesting question to think about as we start things off and kick off this Reformation series, uh, and that is, why would Paul even think he needed to say, I'm not ashamed? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because actually in the verse before, and if you want to land, if you want to land in, in Romans 1, you could turn there now, start getting there, but in Romans 1, 15, he says, I'm really eager to preach to you the gospel. So Paul's saying, I'm very excited to share the gospel with you, for I'm not ashamed of it. I, I wish I was there speaking it to you, preaching it to you. Now this is interesting because Romans 1, 16 and 17 is, there's a lot going on there. I mean, on the one hand, it's a simple explanation of the gospel. On the other hand, it's, there's just so much depth there. And I, and I kind of felt like when I was studying it this week, I was thinking, I'm not quite so eager to preach the gospel today, but, but only because I'm looking at these two verses and I'm going, there is just so much here. Like, what do I focus on in these two incredible verses? I'm a little more eager right now. I, I feel like we got a game plan. So uh, I'm only going to be able to cover uh, just a sliver of it, of what we could cover in that verse. But I want to start by asking the question, why does Paul write that he's not ashamed of the gospel? And I think it's because within the gospel, there are things that the world would be naturally ashamed of. A convicted criminal hanging on a cross. Shameful. Put in a tomb and your story is he came back to life. Oh, really? shameful. But he's like, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not. It's the power of God. Think about the Jewish people. This was the Jewish Messiah, right? And they rejected him. The will of the majority was to put him on the cross. So his own people said no to him as a Messiah, even though he really was the Messiah. Shameful. So you're this little offshoot of a major religion, Judaism. Well, it's not just an offshoot. It's everything Judaism was leading towards. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of any of that. Because the gospel is the power of God. And so when we talk about the gospel, we mean the, the message, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sins. That's the gospel. He rose from the dead. But he paid for all of our sins. Um, we are kicking off this series on uh, the Reformation by looking at a verse that changed Martin Luther's life. That changed his life. And I'll, and I'll give you a little more history in a few minutes. But what I want to do is, I want to focus on the phrase that Luther had to grapple with. The phrase that used to bother him, it'd be a phrase that would keep you up at night. It's in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? So in studying this, this famous text, this, I mean, one of the greatest two verses in all of Scripture, I'm just going to zero in on what is the righteousness of God. It's not as easy as you might think to answer that question. Now, righteousness in general is tricky to define. I, I'm kind of a simple guy, you know, so I'm kind of like, I'm going to make this easy. You know, I look at righteous and I think it's got the word right in it. And, and it refers to being right. Doing right. Being in a right relationship with God. I think that's an easy way, especially if you're a young person, to remember what is 
righteousness. Being right, doing right, being in a right relationship with God, righteousness. Now, if you put it in this prepositional phrase, righteousness of God, it, it complicates things because you gotta ask the question, what does of God mean? And in Greek, we call this a genitive, and, and, and there's a lot of nuances to that word. It's not as precise as maybe you'd like it to be, the way I wish it would be. A lot of different nuances. You could look at it and go, well, righteousness of God could mean God's righteousness. Like his attribute of, like, like, like God is love, you know, that, that's, that's who he is, you know, or God is holy. Holy is an attribute of God. So is righteousness, which is absolutely true. But is that what Paul's referring to when he says, the right, in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed? Is that what he means? And, 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 and it could partly mean that. I don't, I don't think that's the main thing. It could also mean the righteousness of God that, that transforms the sinner. Like, hopefully, we are growing in our own righteous conduct. That's called the, the transformational view of, of, of that phrase. But again, I don't think that gets at what's really going on here. I think if you, under, if you want to understand what is the righteousness of God, you've got to look at the end of the verse, uh, verse 17, where Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's talking about a righteous person. The righteous shall live by faith. A righteous person shall live by faith. So if he's talking about people, then the gospel reveals a righteousness that we get to have. A righteousness that comes from God. And so I think the best way to understand righteousness of God is the idea that it is God's justification of the sinner. Another big word, justification. And again, kids, if you want to know what justification means, um, I'll give you a good way to remember it. And some of you have heard this, right? Just as if I never sinned. Justification. It's a legal term that means God has declared us not guilty. You're not guilty. You are, in fact, righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because he's declaring you righteous based on the death and resurrection of Christ. His righteousness is given to you. So, let's do this. I'm starting with number one. And number one is probably my main point, the big point. If you came out with one thing, I'm starting with this. This is what you really need to understand. The righteousness of God is a gifted righteousness so that we would not work for it, but believe for it. It's a gifted righteousness. And I think the uh, Habakkuk passage shows that. Um, if you look at uh, Romans 3.21, which was read earlier in the service today, um, it says, uh, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So again, it's, it's like, it's, it's for you. You get to receive it. It's a gift. And so I think that's a great way to understand, that's the right way to understand righteousness of God in this passage, even though it could be referring also to the attribute of God being righteous too. I mean, I'm not saying we're not trying to divide things too neatly, but I think there's a main point here. Now, in Habakkuk, so at the end of verse 17, Paul quotes Old Testament. He quotes Habakkuk to make his point, and he says, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And his point being, uh, in Habakkuk, a little bit of background to that, 
one of the one of the issues in Habakkuk is you've got the Chaldean army uh, coming into Israel and, and 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 they're basically judging Israel for the Lord. And Habakkuk's kind of saying, "Why are you using a wicked army to bring judgment on us? Like, why would you do this? Like, they're worse than us. How can they come against us? How can you use the Chaldean army? That's totally not fair." And it sounds like, you know, well, fairness is about righteousness. It's about what's just. It's about what's right. And and what God says is, no, no, yeah, there are many unrighteous people and there's judgment coming on them. But Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Like, I still know who the righteous is and they're, they're, they're going to live by faith. And so Paul lifts out of Habakkuk and says, you see, this is how God operates. People that have faith are the righteous ones and they're the ones that will live. And he uses it for like a eternal life sort of idea in the book of Romans. They'll live. Now, Luther wrestled with this passage. And I told you I'd give you a little bit of history about Martin Luther. If you're going to be in a small group this uh, this fall, you're going to hear more of this. But I want to give you a little bit, and especially for you young people that won't be watching the video series. Uh, it's a documentary series we're watching in small groups. But Luther, uh, Martin Luther, as, he's, how, as he was growing up, you know, and you're talking... Uh, you know, late 1400s, early 1500s. Uh, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. But one day, there's a famous story where he was caught in a thunderstorm. And it, and it was just a, it was a terrible thunderstorm, and he was scared for his life. And so, apparently, during that thunderstorm, he's outside, and he called out to the patron saint of minors. The patron saint of minors. You didn't know they had one, right? But I think it was Anne. He said, uh, St. Anne, save me. And I will become a monk. Well, he was saved, and he was good on his promise. He became a monk. And in becoming a monk, uh, he had this very acute sense of his own unrighteousness. Like he went to confession every day, and he was in there for lengthy periods of time. And the person receiving his confessions would say, you know, Martin, you need to come back when you've done enough sin to actually confess, you know. Yeah, come back when you've been bad is what he's saying, you know. But but Luther had this like really sensitive conscience, and he's like, I am just unrighteous. That that's who I am. And so when Luther read about the righteousness of God in Romans one seventeen, this terrified him. I've got the quote for you. Can we pull the quote up? Um, this is Luther. I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to Romans. A single word in chapter 1, verse 17, he's referring to. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way, for I hated that word righteousness of God, which I have been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. Do you see that? Luther says, I understood the righteousness of God to mean... The fact that God is a just God. He's a righteous God. That's the same word in Greek, by the way, just and righteous. And God is going to do what's fair, and I'm going to get what's coming to me. The righteous judge will judge me. And he was terrified of that. Until the lights went on, and what he realized, and Habakkuk helped him realize it, Habakkuk 2.4, he realized the righteous shall live by faith. And what he realized is, I mean, you, you can even translate that a little bit differently in Habakkuk. You could even say, the righteous by faith shall live. The one who was righteous because of their faith. By their faith. The righteous by faith shall live. And he realized, 
This is a gift. This is a gift of God. There's a story told about Luther. Uh, he went to ascend the, um, the sacred steps, the holy steps. And it was like this special, you know, you, you could receive grace by ascending this staircase. It was made of marble. And they said at the time that it was a staircase that Jesus climbed on the way to Pontius Pilate. So they had this sacred, holy staircase. And Luther's thinking, you know, the very, the very blood of Christ may have dropped on these marble steps. And so what you would do is you come to the steps, you know, and, and, and however many steps there were, and, and you would kneel down, you know, and, and you would pray on each step and, and say the Lord's Prayer, and then you would ascend the steps on your knees. And you could decrease time in purgatory for a loved one. You know, the different things they would do if you ascended these steps on your knees. And as Luther went up the steps, um, it said that Habakkuk came to his mind. The righteous will live by faith. <laughs> you know, did you get it? We don't live by steps, stair steps. We live by faith. And he realized this is a gift. It's just a gift. And that changed everything for Luther. I'll give you a quote at the end about what he said after he realized this. So the point being, the application, if we can go back to point one. Here's the application. I put it right in with the point. This is a gifted, the righteousness of God is a gifted righteousness. Uh, theologians use the word imputed. A uh, big word to mean that, that, that we are infused with, we are given Jesus' righteousness. When you become a Christian, it's like you disappear and God looks at you and he, all he sees is Jesus' righteousness and not your sinfulness. When we sing Cornerstone, we sing that line, faultless to stand before the throne. That's it. You're going to stand before the throne one day and if you're a believer, you've been given righteousness and now you're faultless. And you've been given Jesus' righteousness. So now we don't work for it, but we believe for it. We don't ascend. We don't go on the steps on our knees Nothing like that. And again, that's a different understanding than what Catholics have. A more Catholic understanding of receiving grace would be, I've got to take the Eucharist, I've got to be baptized, and when I do these sacraments, grace is given to me. That, that's, the, that's the mechanism by which I receive grace. And for Luther, it was, no, only faith. That's the only way you can get it. Faith alone. You see the difference. We don't have to ascend steps. So we don't work for it. We believe for it. Uh, number two, the righteousness of God. Uh, it is a revealed righteousness from faith to faith. Uh, or, or as the ESV says, it's a revealed righteousness from faith for faith. Okay? Now, um, this is kind of tough. I mean, I, I get the understanding of a revealed righteousness. You know, when I read the Bible... The gospel's revealed to me, right? Like I can read about Jesus, I read about what he's done, I see it. I, I can picture in my mind's eye his crucifixion. I can see the light from his resurrection, you know. I can imagine him ascending back to God. Like it, it's all there. I can see it through eyes of faith. But why does it say from faith for faith? Or some verses say, some translations say from faith first to last. It's revealed from faith for faith. Uh, how do I understand that? Now, uh, that's an interesting expression, and theologians love 
coming up with lots of different ideas of what this could mean. Um, let, let me give you a, just a sample list. I think you'll find this interesting. From faith to faith, what does it mean? Uh, does it mean from the faithfulness of God to the faith of believers? Like That's kind of cool. Like God is faithful to keep his promises from faith to faith. So from God's faithfulness to our faith to believe it. That's kind of interesting. Or how about this? From a law-oriented faith, like the Old Testament, to a gospel-oriented faith, which is what we're at right now, from faith to faith. Or how about this one? From the faith of the evangelist. So when you share your faith, you're sharing it with someone who's hearing you, and if they receive it, it's like from faith to faith, from your faith to their faith. That's kind of cool. Or how about this? From an immature faith to a mature faith. Right? So when you start out as a Christian, you kind of have an immature faith. It's a saving faith, but you're kind of immature, but you become more and more mature over time. Now, depending on who you read, everyone's got like a favorite. Like, I think it means this. Again, I'm a little more simple, and I think you could capture some of these in what I'm about to say, but I think Paul's point is it's like the idea of sheer faith. It's all about faith. It's the only way you receive it. You start that way. You end that way. It's always been about faith. I mean, so, so, so the way I would say it is sheer faith. That's it. I mean, it's simple. I think that's what Paul's going for. If you want another, another example, because the phrase faith to faith is kind of like, we don't talk like that, you know, but Paul does. Another example would be, um, where Paul talks like this. Second Corinthians 2.16. A lot of you know this verse. He says, uh, to one, so, so we are to one, the fragrance of death to death, to the other, from life to life. You know, so death to death, life to life. I think the idea is from beginning to end, death, beginning to end, life. All about life, all about death, from start to finish. But I find it interesting because it says, it's revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed. And I look at verse 16. If you look at verse 16, when Paul says, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who believes is a participle, present participle, and, and, a, and, a, and a really literal translation would be um, to everyone who is believing. Who is believing. I think the emphasis lies on Paul saying, you are believing right now. And right now, God continually reveals His righteousness to you as a believer. I think you can make an argument for, and we can put an, uh, point number two back up there. I think it, it's, it makes a lot of sense to say this. This is a revealed righteousness so I can see it. And it's from faith to faith. And that is what's keeping me going in my Christian walk. It's the gospel. It's the righteousness. It, it, it fuels me in my faith as I see it. I think it's not popular anymore, but we, you can get those images ready, Jim. I don't think it's popular anymore, but was there a time when uh, motivational posters were actually popular at work? You know what I'm talking about, motivational posters? Let me show you a few. And kids, if you don't, don't know what this is, like this was like, this got adults up in the morning. Let me tell you. It wasn't the coffee. It was the motivational posters. Okay? You had stuff like this. 
Challenge. Always set the trail. Never follow the path. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next one. You had stuff like this. Determination. To those who understand the power of determination, unlikely does not mean impossible. Determination. Man, that's good. Uh, next. Jump in. Things may come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Right? Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Right? That makes me work hard, you know? <laughs> no, those aren't hanging in my office. They're probably not in your office either. But there's also demotivational posters, okay? Have you heard of these? Demotivation. Okay. So let's show you three of these too, okay? This is good. Hindsight. Those really were the droids you were looking for. Okay? Yep. Next. Motivation. Every corpse on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated person. <laughs> and there's a lot up there if you've read about it. Okay. Next. Uh, teamwork. Ensuring that your hard work can always be ruined by someone else's incompetence. Yes. It can always be ruined. <laughs> okay. Um, some of you find life hard. And if I was to ask you to list the demotivating factors of your life, you could give me ten right off the top of your head. These are the things that slow me down every day. That take the wind out of my sails. It's a person. It's a thing. It's something going on. It's an event. Whatever it is, it's something internal to you. Listen to me. Listen to this. That God has given us the righteousness of Christ. God looks at us and He sees Jesus. He doesn't see our faults and failures. He sees Jesus. And every day I get to think about that. Every day you get to think about that. Every day you get to consider that Christ loves me and He was willing to die on a cross to save me from my sin. Every day I get to consider the righteousness of God that I should be condemned to hell, but instead I'm going to heaven, and it's because of God's righteousness. And that is motivation to live your life. That is motivation to live out your faith. To not be ashamed of the gospel. To not let the demotivators stop you. Do you hear that? I mean, do you see it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing. Are you believing? You'd say yes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's fueling your faith. The more you think about the gospel, the more you dwell on it, the more you never get over it. I used to be the guy, I totally admit, you know, when the pastor gave the altar call at the end of the service, I'm like, the gospel again. Okay. But no. No. Every day. Let it be every day. Okay. Uh, thirdly. You know, when you have an illustration like that, you always think to yourself, how will I follow that up? You know, the stormtrooper put me over the edge. I just, I don't know. The people listening on the podcast are like, what is so funny? I don't know. Um, okay, number three. <clears throat> this is a powerful righteousness 
so that we are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. It's a powerful righteousness. So here's, here's what I'm looking at in Romans 6, 1, 16 and 17. Uh, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. There is something powerful, verse 16, about the righteousness, verse 17. You see that there? In So the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is So there's a connection between power and righteousness, and, and I think the connection is this. It takes a powerful righteousness to save us, to save us from the powerful wrath of God. So in the answer to the question, what does God save us from? When we say, I'm saved, I'm saved, I have salvation. What are we saved from? We often say hell, and that's true. What is hell? It's the wrath of God. God saves me from God. Okay? It's not just righteousness that is revealed in verse 17. Look at verse 18. If you've got your Bible still open, hopefully. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is what? It's being revealed against all the godlessness. Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. And then he lists a whole bunch of sins. And you can include everybody in that list. There's, you know, nobody can read that list and say, I've never done any of those. You know, by the end of Romans 1, you've done something in that list. And God's wrath is on you. And it took the power of God's righteousness to avert that wrath. It's a powerful righteousness. And so we have to know, well, what am I saved from? The fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Forever and ever we would experience it in hell if not for Christ and His righteousness. So what we're saying is, Luther had a point when he said he was terrified about the righteousness of God. Someone without Christ should be terrified of righteousness. Because that means God's going to treat you as you deserve. As a sinner without Christ. But the good thing is for Luther, he realized it's a righteousness by faith. All I have to do is, by faith, receive it. Faith is reaching out your hands and saying, I'll take it. I believe it's there. I'll take it. God, you're there. You want to give it to me? I'll take it. That's faith. Not working. I'll take it. And this is what Luther says at the end of his life. Uh, maybe not even the end of his life. I'm not sure when he wrote this. Excuse me. But um, at the end of this story of his life, he says, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at, and he was referring to Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. And isn't that an appropriate phrase? I felt like I entered paradise through open gates. 
For the one that has faith, they receive righteousness and they will enter paradise. And if you're here, and this is not you that I'm talking about, and you are still under the wrath of God, this is something you want to rectify this morning. This is something you want to respond to now. Can I have the worship team come up at this time? love to hear Cornerstone again. Could we do that? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If this morning your desire is to receive the righteousness of Christ, have it credited to your account. And if that is the case, would you pray something like this with me? Lord Jesus, I recognize this morning that I am in need, that I am the sinner, and there is a long list of my sins. Romans 1 might not even cover it all. But I confess those sins today. I repent of them. And based on Jesus' death and resurrection, I ask for forgiveness. Thank you for dying in my place. I understand this morning that the, the horror of the cross is all because of the horror of my sin. I understand this morning that my need for righteousness is great and you supplied it all. Thank you that my greatest need is also your greatest gift. And now I receive it by faith. I see the doors of paradise swung open for me today. Thank you for saving me. Now help me follow you with my life. In Jesus' name I pray. And with your head